this is Hello listeners, welcome to this brand new far out episode of Warts Celluloid. I'm your host Jack Rourke with my esteemed co-host, Chandler Williams. How's it going Chandler? How's the vibes this morning? Vibes are good out here Jack, you know, woke up early and I'm really excited to talk about this film. I mean, the skies are suitably apocalyptic on my end, I mean, I'm closer mm. to the California wildfires than you are, and uh, skies are yellow and smoky. Smoky, definitely ominous. Definitely oh, wow. provides scary. the right atmosphere. Yeah, feels like the opening of Apocalypse Now down here. It's kind of strange. It's kind of <gasps> oof. Oh yeah. Anyway, so Chandler, let's get right into it. What film are we gonna be talking about today? Today we'll be talking about Dead Man. And you are a dead man. You three are supposed to be the finest killers this here half of the world. I want him brought here to me. Alive or dead don't matter. Though I reckon dead would be easier. The hunt is on. is soft like a girl's now how do you get it that way see this old stuff of mine it just well it's just like old barn hay there ain't a darn thing you can do with it you had the last philistine this one's mine is that a fact well how's if i just see you then eh? what do you think about that Gary Farmer, Lance Henriksen, Michael Wincott, Millie Avatar, Crispin Glover, Iggy Pop, Billy Bob Thornton, Jared Harris, and Gabriel Byrne, John Hurt, Alfred Molina, with special appearance by Robert Mitchum. You William Blake? Yes, I am. Do you know my poetry? That there Blake fella keeps on shooting marshals. I'll end up liking the dead man. The new film by Jim Jarmusch. Original soundtrack by Neil Young. Alrighty, let's get right off the cuff into the uh, the nitty gritty. What's was this your first introduction to Jim Jarmusch? Yes, this is still the only Jim Jarmusch film I've seen, but I want to see more. 
and I'm 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 so excited to talk about this film. We we've been talking about covering this one for a very long time. Yeah, I know it's exciting. We're finally getting to it. I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. What do I use? Is this your first introduction to him? Actually, no. I my first film of his was uh, Patterson with Adam Driver, which was oh yeah, still one of my big comfort films. One of my uh, the nice. films of his that I have seen so far are let me hang on, let me pull up the letterbox. <laughs> sponsor by letterbox <laughs> not really I mean, we already have enough fake sponsor gags and i'm actually yeah. getting really real sponsorship so who knows we have to retire that gang i want to see um a lot of his films yeah because i love I this do. one so much i've seen dead man patterson night on earth the dead don't die mystery train and coffee and cigarettes that's about it so far that's like pretty much all of them well, actually, no, there's still lovers, only Lovers Left Alive, Strangers in Paradise, Down by Law, all, some of his early stuff. He actually, we're going to get to Iggy Pop's cameo definitely later, but he did a great documentary about the Stooges called D- Gimme Danger. Def- nice. And if you're into the music history and punk history, give that a watch. I will. That sounds awesome. Anyway, off the cuff, th- or in thoughts, like just on the movie in general. Oh, oh starting at the very beginning. The Criterion Collection has did they do an excellent job of setting the tone through the title menu? And oh, that absolutely. My, that was my first note. Um, yeah, no, but uh, I saw this. You showed this movie to me. You lent it to me like last year, and it just yeah. blew my mind. It, I've never seen a western like that, and oh, it's yeah. just just so great. There's so many things I'm ready to talk about, like the just the tone and how it's not over the top. Uh, I've I've got so many notes. Anyways, but it's what, definitely what, surreal, though. It's definitely surreal. Yeah, absolutely. I was gonna say, and speaking of Criterion and Jim Jarmusch, did you hear the announcement that they're finally putting out Ghost Dog: Way of the Samurai? Yes. I'm That's so awesome. excited. I'm so excited. I want to see that. We should we should cover that one. Yeah, we're definitely gonna cover it, and actually, we might bring it up at the end because uh, Gary Farmer's nobody character actually makes a brief appearance in it. Oh, nice. It's a blinker. You miss a cameo, but it is fun. And well, we'll de- he... oh, we're definitely going to talk about nobody. We're definitely. Oh yeah, have you seen Ghost Dog? I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I do know I mainly know of it because of that and the fact that the Rizzo did the music for for it, and it's generally one of Orin Jarmusch's more eclectic films. Yes. Yes. Yep. Anyway, well, that's awesome. Anyways, the the opening scene. Let's just talk about that. Where do we begin? Or in a... I guess we do start at the beginning. The basic story of this movie is there's this account, there's this accountant named William Blake, which we'll get into the subtextual meaning of that name later. Later, he drives over to this western town of Machine for a job, a job he does not get, and that after a series of events, there's an, he's left wanted and on the run with a, with a Native American man and goes through this existential, metaphysical, spiritual journey across the old west. Yeah, there is definitely a coherent story there, but it's kind of oddly hard to sum up. It's more like a like a series of events rather than a plot. I guess a travelogue would be a good way to describe it, considering how well the movie photographs the Western landscape. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like they travel through like different landscapes. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of horseback riding in this. By the way, I've seen comparisons to or like the photography and the landscape stuff or any stuff to uh, Ansel Adams photographs, and I completely see it. Especially that shot they used for the Criterion cover. Yeah, yeah. Very... Great cover. You know, <clears throat> sponsored by Criterion. <clears throat> sponsored by Criterion. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of Criterion, there actually is a really cool extra on the Blu-ray, which 
one of the probably one of my favorite Criterion releases ever, because of just how much stuff they included on it. But one of the things I find most interesting was the the one feature called Black and White in Color, which is a bunch of set photos that were in color. And yes. man, does it look going to give the movie a really different feel. Oh, a totally different vibe. Um, it looks kind of weird. I didn't like it as much. I mean, I I definitely wouldn't want the whole movie to look like this, but it was. But I'm glad it was there. I'm glad. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. this is definitely one of those movies where black and white was in 100 the right way to go. Oh, absolutely. I'm like so his... glad. Or this wasn't a situation like Frank Darabont's The Mist, where the studio or where Frank Darabont from the beginning on that film insisted it being on black and white, but the studio put it out in color, and we didn't get the actual intended version until I think. I think the collector's edition Blu-ray, which was only a few years ago. Thankfully, something like that didn't happen with this, and we ran it, and it's all for the better because this is some of the best use of black and white I think I've ever seen in the movie. Oh yeah, same. Like it's a it's a pretty heavy contrast black and white. Um, it's a, it's got a really smoky, hazy, dirty look to it. Yeah, there, very very grainy. I think uh, the best use of black and white are in two ways. It either makes the green clean stuff look even more slick, or it looks green dirty makes dirty stuff look even grungier. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I made this comparison before, but this whole movie looks like the the album cover to the White Stripes' Icky Thump, but expanded out into a whole movie. Wow, that's a great comparison. I mean, the music obviously is similar, but not... I mean, like, this is a lot moodier and heavier, which... And we're definitely going to go around in the Neil Young score, because... Wow. So that much is, there. Yeah. I mean, Did you see that... Uh... There's a Did whole episode we could get just out of that score. There's a whole episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you watch the um, special feature with Neil Young? Um, of course I did. My dad, yes. my dad's also a big Neil Young fan, so I'm like, okay, I know exactly who needs to see this. Oh right yeah. When I got the Blu-ray, right? It is, Ren bizarre and fascinating to watch him because it's, I mean, for those who don't know, Neil Young, Ren did the uh, score for this film in a very, not particularly normal way for film music. Like he composed a single main theme, and then for the rest of the film, as Jarmusch sent him the dailies, he just composed. Or in or in improvise as he watched the movie, and if you look at the actual um, documentary footage that they include on there, it's clear that it's got the film's got him in some sort of trance. Like he is intensely focused. He's like you don't see him looking out of the car; his eyes are locked on that screen. He's like swaying in a in a like yeah. hypnotic way. It's yeah. very intriguing. Wow, it's it is a thing to behold. Or just I'm also a huge like Neil Young fan. You know, it's funny that we also bring up Neil Young in relation to Jim Jarmusch because he did do a concert film with him with uh and Crazy Horse called um you're I believe it's called You're the Horse. I know I found when I was cleaning out my garage recently, I found a copy of it in my dad's uh, DVD collection. Oh, nice. I I love uh Neil Young's um collaborations with Crazy Horse. They're yep. Anyway, um, absolutely amazing. Anyways, yeah, yeah. I, I I'm really fond of like the early '70s Neil Young. Yeah. Right, but right, but this this is high out there for me because I think you know what, right, we're well into it. Let's just talk about the score right now. That's the first way I discovered this movie was because I remember seeing images from it, like okay, that's interesting, and, and then I found the music right, because I got recommended to it from I think a friend or I saw a Twitter thread on it. Right, but I'm like, right, I just started listening to it while I was working on a project, and it just it. Wow, like okay, uh, that came from I mean, that turned this from a curiosity item to a must see for me. Nice, because I uh, don't yeah. think I've heard a western that actually sounds like this. Like obviously, electric guitar, guitars are no stranger to western scores, and I mean, they've been a, a stable of the genre since Ennio Morricone was doing his 
other than I probably mentioned this before, but may he rest in peace. Yes, man, it, it still feels surreal that we lo- really lost um, Ennio Morricone this year. I'm not too familiar with him, but it's it's the same. Good, the bad, the, bad, and the ugly. Oh much yeah, Richard Leone film. Well, yeah, John yeah. Carpenter is a thing. Ma- monumental composer. Okay. But this is a lot hazier, a lot grungier, and a lot, a lot more sad. Like m- very uh, gloomy. Yeah, gloomy is the perfect word for it. I think the right, right, the whole right, this score and uh, the meaning of nobody's nickname name is pretty much the mo- right, the movie in a nutshell. Funny, but also but tinged with an undeniable uh, sense of melancholy. It's it's unlike well because of that fact, it's unlike any western I've ever seen, and I love it for that reason. Honestly, the closest thing I can compare of movie-wise is probably McCabe and Mrs. Miller, or in the Robert Altman film. But even then, that's or in, that is still or in, not a perfect comparison. Although that movie makes really, really good use of some of her, in Leonard Cohen's early music. Ah, interesting. I'll have to check it out. I do have the Criterion Blu-ray, and I'll probably bring it with me when I get back when I get back to Georgia. Mark my nice. words. Yes, we have a lot to exchange. Um, this is gonna be you fun. know. Boros. Yes. Anyway, yes. back to the or the film or as a whole, or as a whole, I think this is one of Johnny Depp's strongest performance, and it's probably my favorite type of Johnny Depp performance where oh, it's yeah. quirky, but he's it feels restrained. Like there's a real frailty and vulnerability. This, or whether it's this or Ed Wood or Edward Scissorhands, and yes, hell, I, I even kind of like his performance in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I, I I wrote that that same. I think it's it's either between this and Fear and Loathing is my Johnny. Favorite Johnny Depp performance because it's not over the top and just it's like very so eccentric. Yeah, like he and looks he looks sad and wounded the whole time. Like he, or you can see like his eyes darting around, right around the frame just to make sure, or to make sure he's on the constant defense. He's not a character. He's not a caricature like a Jack Sparrow or um, you know, all the other eccentric roles. Well, Jack roles. Sparrow in the later movies. I think the problem with, or I think we mentioned this on our Pirates of the Caribbean episode that we did with uh, Lost in the Vault recently was. The problem with Jack Sparrow is they made him the main character of that series when he was clearly only meant to be supporting. Yeah, and you should check out that episode. Um, a- absolutely, please give Dolan the man, or Amanda, or some, or some love if you can, or you can. That was a very fun episode to record. It, it and, yeah, uh, it was great. Involved a surprising amount of talks of cannibalism. <laughs> that was uh, that was a lot to learn. Passionate talks about can- cannibalism. Oddly yeah. well-informed talks about cannibalism. <laughs> yes. But still fascinating nonetheless. And speaking of cannibalism, shall we get to some of the rest of this cast? I, well, I, I, think we can, I think we should keep talking about Johnny Depp. I still have more to say. Yeah. Oh, definitely. He, it's, it's, yeah, frail is the perfect word. It, yeah. It, Vulner, there's a vulnerability to him that you just don't see in a lot of his other performances. Exactly. And he's... I don't know. Oh, I just, I just love it so much. It's... He's so restrained and frail and just it it's true acting. It's not just like playing around. It's not showing as like this well, I mean, let's hope this gets me a best actor nomination. Like this is I know exactly what this movie needs and I'm going to play it to the skill set to get in the right thing out of it. Absolutely. Anyways, cannibalism. Cannibalism. I'm relent. Should we mention the part where Lance Hemrickson eats a human hand? Sure. I okay. Let's let's, 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 let's back I guess up. that's his, I guess that's as apt an introduction as any for uh, Lance Hemrickson's character because he is bo- or in both funny and oddly terrifying. Well, uh, more oddly funny and terrifying because everything about this character is just pitch black human darkness. He's funny in a terrifying way. 
Also, also, I love the setup of the three bounty hunters and how they're distinctly... Right, how yeah. they're all, like, practicing how they're going to capture him. Like, where they're all whipping the guns out at the same time and then just, like, slowly putting him back. And then, bam! They're practicing their setup. Even yes. John Hurt, who... Wow, speaking of icons we've lost. Right, in such a small role. Right, role makes an impact. Oh, like yeah. A, like a weary, creaking part of this rel- or in this old relic desert town, which... In perfect casting for that role, yep. also. Chris no, Lover but... in the intro is just so weird and spooky oh and yes got, and i'm like yeah that's a probably one of the best use of crispin glover on screen which is weird again he is this is a very small role for him but he makes i love movies wearing like this in true romance it's, and it seems like we got a lot of these in the 90s where when they have these a lot where these big casts but they boil down to more or less one two or three or central characters but the right where it's the big names were playing like these small roles small but not insubstantial yeah, no, that he Crispin Glover, Crispin Glover's character is an excellent way to start the film. Like, it, oh yeah, he just has an absurd dialogue that's so like existential yep. and deep, and it's We're just so inter- out of but cryptic. Out of context. Yeah. yeah, it's so cryptic and out of context. It's a movie. It's a movie that definitely benefits from rewatches. From like- oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, this is my third time watching it. I just watched it last night. Likewise, likewise. And Actually, I, possibly my fourth. Possibly my fourth. Mm. I just loved it so much. Um, yeah. with sub- subsequent viewings, excuse me. Subsequent is a very sometimes hard word. It's fine. I trip over my many words. Many words. Um, it's an even playing field now. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyways, what Let's else? See here. We mentioned Lance Henriksen, John Hurt. There's a few other people. I mean, like, Gabriel Byrne actually shows up for a really interesting appearance, who's arguably gives a more frail and uh, pathetic performance than Don... I mean pathetic in a good way, like the character's pathetic. Who, who does he play? Gar- Gabriel Byrne was the uh, husband of that girl he, uh, or he girl he sleeps with oh, in the opening. Oh, yes. Yeah. That, like, the, the quote, dude he frames him. I've never stopped loving you. That, that scene, the first time I watched that, that hit me so hard. Because, like, like... While this film's not over the top whatsoever, it's just so real and like it's just everything is just played out the right amount. Oh shit! That, I just realized something cool. I mean, Steve Buscemi has an uncredited appearance as a bartender. How did I not uh, know that? Really? It that looks kind of wow. I didn't even notice him. I didn't. He has like a beard and mustache. It looks yeah. Okay, I can see that. Wow, that's oh, yeah. a fun fact. Yep, I'm um, looking up the picture right now just to see. See what it. Shit, that is him. Shit, that is. You're right. The beard and mustache actually do a lot. It's like this thick, like really big, bushy beard. Yep. There's a lot of great. Chandler, if you like this, I have to recommend a certain genre for you. Well, subgenre, actually. The Acid Western. Basically, psychedelic. Although Jim Jarmusch, director of this film, or in film, prefers the term psychedelic. Right, although this is psychedelic in, in the truest meaning of the word, because uh, psych obviously means mindedelic, meaning revealing. Well, this is a movie with... The weird thing is about the acid slash psychedelic western is there, there's not a lot of trippy imagery in a lot of these. Like, there's not, like, full-out freakouts. It's more, well, existential. Yeah. It's, I'd say there's some surreal aspects, like the stars. Oh, it's totally... Oh yeah, the stars are like even in the opening that wide shot of Johnny Depp in the town, and you or you can see the smoke coming out of the factories, but it doesn't look like it's really there. It looks like an optical effect out of the post. 
Yeah, it looks like uh, they rotoscoped. Also, with the skull on his face. When, yes, um, my favorite shot. That, that is my favorite shot in the whole movie. When they're oh, yeah. when he and nobody are taking peyote. I thought just nobody took it. Yep. Right. I think. Oh yeah. No, it was just nobody. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, back to what I was saying is, uh, there's also other great members of this cast. Alfred Molina makes a really good appearance as a really, really nasty, just tra- like trade store owner. And yeah, we haven't even gotten to the triple threat of Billy Bob Thornton, Jared Harris, and Iggy Pop. Iggy That's... Pop in a dress. Like, why was he wearing a dress? Do we? We just don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think they're just a bunch of weirdos. That's a fantastic detail. Yeah, like this, and, this hair of mine, it's just like old barn hay. Yeah. <laughs> and he shoots yeah. him in the foot. And They're he like, well, shoot just me now, goddammit. Bill. Uh, it's such a hilarious segment. Yep, it's such a, and it's such a bizarre off-kill. And that turns really friggin' dark. Oh, yeah. Where you're like, once <laughs> nobody shows up and gets, like, the violence in this movie is really interestingly handled. It is. It's not over the top, yep. but it's. You mentioned how you said you awesome. haven't seen a western like this. I don't think I've seen a movie, any movie, regardless of genre, handle violence in the way it does. Or outside of maybe M Night Shyamalan's Glass, but it's not to this level, where it's this awkward and clumsy. It seems very realistic. Yeah, realist, realistic, but not in a or in a dis, well, mostly not in a disturbing way, but more. Oddly comical, like ac- people accidentally getting shot with stray bullets. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I was referring to like the gore. It seems realistic yeah. like, when people actually get shot. Yeah, like it's God, not like again, over the top. Of, like, God, that shot of Lance Henriksen eating the hand is just. Ugh. I'm oh, not yeah. even that squeamish when it comes to gore. I mean, gore, but that made me like shiver. It's making no, me it, shiver right now, actually, just thinking about it. What made me shiver was like when uh, he crushes the human head. Oh god! Or when he, he shoots pops. one of the, or he shoots one of his own guys. Yeah, yeah. Which is like this poor seventeen-year-old black kid. I'm like, well, he looks like at like late teens or like twenties. I'm just speculating on the age. Or like he just he seems like definitely the youngest of the trio, of the trio of bounty hunters. Yeah, he was. And uh, one last final role that we have, and I'd be remiss if we didn't mention Robert Fucking Mitchum. One of the classic actors of westerns and film noir, and basically one of the early masculine icons of film history. Who does he play in here? He he is the uh, father of the go- woman who gets killed. He's the guy who owns the factory too. Oh yes, yes, yes. He also has my favorite line in the entire movie: "The only job you're going to be getting around here is pushing up daisies from a pine box." Wow, that is good classic western screenwriting right there. Yes. Anyway. Okay, yeah, he he was a great character. Very. Well, like, this is his final film role. Oh wow! This is this was his last movie before he passed away. That wasn't some uh, appearance in a documentary later on, like archival footage. It is definitely a good one to go out on. And after watching something like Blood on the Moon, which is a class, which is part of Criterion Channel's uh, Western Noir collection, yeah, I can totally see why they got him for this. Yeah, would you consider this a Western Noir? Possibly. Or not really, not. I mean, po- there's arguments for it, but I don't see it. I mean, it's primarily Western. In the, or in the, although both genres are very inexplicably linked because they're both very pulpy in nature, and they both, or in both deal with these lone gunmen, or in figures, one is more stoic and the other is more uh, morally complicated. Mm. I think yeah. there is an argument to me maybe about that. I, mean, I, th- I don't know. I have to give it more thought. I have to. Give- 
There's double okay. stuff there to analyze, though. There's I like I like the acid western term. I think I would consider yeah. this more acid western than yeah. Um, many consider this to be the last more. one of that. Or in a, there's a whole bunch of others that though Sam Peckinpah arguably has made a few. Anyways, let's let's reel it back a little bit. I my notes are in order of um, the scenes. So one of my actually my favorite scene favorite scene in this film is the um, paper roses scene. How, on. how it starts off as a wide shot. It's just one wide shot of her, or like of them talking about the roses in her bedroom. They talk for a while, and it's it's a very wide shot for a bedroom. But then they go super close on their faces to like show the intimacy, and that's just a subtle way of it's awkward, but it's oddly comforting. Yeah, it, it, one of the it's few moments compelling. of actual like peace in this movie. Yeah, and like the it's dialogue. Not a very loud movie, except for or in certain chunk or in chunks, but even the quiet stuff is still, if not uneasy, very doom and gloom. Yes, yes, and this is a much more like peaceful and like um, hopeful serene. scene. Yeah, serene, Almost serene. Like, Okay, he's finally maybe he's found his niche. Yes, and like the score for the scene and for all the scenes with her, like the the prior one, excellent, excellent. Yeah, but anyways, like the dialogue, the organ is really good in that segment. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's that might be my favorite like scored part, um, like live. And bar. I know I know this is really obnoxious mentioning Radiohead for like the billionth time, but I'm sorry. Why does that track remind me so much of motion picture soundtrack from um, Kid A? I can see that. Yeah. It reminds me like, just like the, the freestyle organ. Yeah, yeah. No, but the the dialogue in the bedroom scene is so raw and real and minimal that it's just it it's just so good. Like the dialogue in in general throughout this film is so. Yeah, it's so good. I think it's Jarmusch, some of Jarmusch's strongest writing, and Jarmusch is, if nothing else, very good at creating very distinct characters with very clear, or an interesting personality. Like, or like movies, if is, I, I even I don't like, I still find really interesting and or, and very watchable. Anyway, nice. or, you mentioned like this this whole idea of vulnerability and frailty. I see. I love that or, the scene with the or, where he's just laying on the ground with a deer for the same reason. Oh yes, absolutely. It, one, it's I mean, just the him of like him like hurled next to the dead deer. It's a really pretty shot, really shot. But there is also just this wounded vulnerability. Like it's clearly a very loaded image. It's also like a shot. It's one of the few, no, one of the several scenes and shots of this film that's artistic for the sake. You know. I wouldn't. Say, I wouldn't say that. I'd say there's something. Right. There has to be some sort of subtextual meaning to it, but I just haven't nailed down what yet. I mean, yes, but like. Super artsy. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely artsy for yeah. the better in this case. Exactly. Yeah. That no, that, that is a beautiful scene though. Yep. If there is one, and there's one character I really want to get around to, and it's and the character that who, whenever I've showed this film to people, it's the one element that always resonates with them. Gary Farmer's performance as nobody. Mm. Yes. One of the best parts of this movie, undoubtedly. Oh, absolutely. Like. Jar- one of Jarmusch's goals in this was to help do a lot better Native American representation. Representation. Ugh. Representation. M- looks like C. Chandler, you're not the only one tripping over his own words today. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Anyway. Well, he definitely succeeded because yeah. nobody is a fantastic character. Even in more positive portrayals of Native Americans in westerns prior, it's still very flawed. Yeah. 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 And it's weird. And it's so weird to me that Johnny Depp did Lone Ranger after this, especially. 
Especially considering how this film is. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we're in I forgot about that Speaking of Lost in the we're in the Vols for a moment, the Lone Ranger feels like what if this movie didn't know it was a genre re- reconstruction and was but was still just as fucked up? Yeah, that's a that's an accurate. Uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, is ironically the lesser movie for it. Definitely. Oh Seriously, yeah, Gary Farmer's nobody. I just I love this character so much. My favorite much. scene of him is like when he. Uh, he just he wears Johnny Johnny Depp's character's hat and he like he acts like he's a white man. It's that's just so funny. Stupid fucking white man. Oh, that that line is also said twice. I, like, I, 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 I multiple times. Wait, really? Just twice? I remember it being used at stupid, least like five times. Stupid fucking white man is said twice, but stupid white man is multiple. Or is multiple, is multiple times. Multiple, yeah. And then, do you have any tobacco? Is said seven times. Yeah, that's a motif, and one of those things that I think is both an in joke and kind of a deeper thing. I remember watching an analysis from a guy named Kyle Calgren, which is very much worth checking out. Out and says a lot more smart, or a lot smarter things about the Native American res- representation than I could, because I am definitely not an expert in that field. Yeah, right. Well, and I shall not claim to be such. Right, but one of the things he pointed out was uh, the, or the or I got no tobacco is kind of nobody's way of trying to extend. Then the olive branch to, or into um, what's his, or in William Blake, or William Blake. How did I forget the character name for a second? Anyway, or was try basically trying to we- run away of like or inviting his hand or in hand and trying to grow closer to him, but or but Johnny Depp just won't or is just be- seeing the literal version or in definition of that and just can't. Even towards the end, he's like, I still don't smoke. Yeah, but he gave him the tobacco. Yeah, I get. I I will definitely check out that. Um... I'll send you the link. Yeah. Um. Yep. I yeah. I love the small moments of it because he's clear. There's the whole relationship between uh Ren Blake and nobody is founded on a misunderstanding because uh because his name is William Blake, Heath assumes he's the poet, not some nobody accountant from the middle of Ohio. Or like even right towards the end, you're not sure if he knows or knows whether or not he's the actual William Blake, which. Or are they still leave, or are we hell whether or not he even cares? I think he knows that he's not, but he towards the end and he doesn't care. Yeah, which I'm which I'm so fine with them doing that because the the whole liar revealed thing can be kind of an annoying plot detail. Yeah, yeah. Or or it feels like an extreme, which thankfully was actually one of the few times when this was done well. Is ironically the movie Rango, which Johnny Depp would do later. We will cover at some point. Oh, de- oh, definitely. That is, but that is going to be a special one. Like we're going to wait till like a, we're at least fifty episodes in, I think, or twenty-five. Yeah. Because yeah. I want to space out the big titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't okay. and don't lo- load all your eggs in one basket, and don't and don't do all the big stuff up front, because then one of you got left to cover. Exactly. That and I want to use the time to cover some s- smaller movies like this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um. Iggy Pop and Company. Yep. That's that's just so funny. That was my next note. Um, Iggy Pop is a very big occurrence in uh, Jim Jarmusch's movies. He's always found places for musicians and stuff like that. The RZA doing the music for Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. Right, obviously that I mean, that Stooges documentary I mentioned. He's also he's also one of the zombies in The Dead Don't Die. Oh, nice. Which is <laughs> he's in Coffee and Cigarettes. Um, Joe Strummer I mentioned was already in, in the lead singer of the Clash is in Mystery Train. He's actually really fun in Mystery Train. One of my favorite parts of that whole movie. I want to see it. Um, yep. Nice. I'm um, not. 
I'm going to say something kind of controversial here. Well, controversial for film snobs. Like, if you're the a- or an average person listening to this, this might just may not mean anything. But I don't love his 80s work. I mean, like, his early or stuff, like, Down by Law and that kind of... I mean, some of it... I don't want to say it was Love Me Cold, but I just don't love it as much as everyone else does. Yeah, I mean, like, it's definitely more indie. Um, like, I love... I like his 90s scene. more. Like, I think he got better as one. Okay, yeah. Although I haven't seen any of his other films, I've seen, yep. like, lots of clips from them. And I can, yeah. like, you know, get their vibe. But, um, and this is definitely a high point of... Yep. Ryan, yeah. speaking of high points, uh, Ryan, 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 what's the word? Uh, patron saying to the show, Robbie Mueller also shot this. Yes. He also shot... Ryan worked with Vin Benders a lot. He worked... And he worked on Until uh, the End of the World, which we already mentioned. He worked on Repo Man. Very, very prolific cinematographer, and one of probably my fa- probably my favorite DP, honestly. Wow, it's yeah. a bold statement. Yeah, which yeah, I think I think very few cinematographers are I whose work I love and admire because consistently. And I just remember he shot To Live and Die in L.A., which nice. is one of the best crime movies of the eighty. 80- I think you're gonna like that one more than Manhunter, honestly. Okay, I could see that. They're both Michael Mann, correct? Uh, no, no. This one was William Friedkin, actually, who did uh, French Connection, Exorcist. Yep. Okay, okay. Yep. By the way, nice. there, I have a, I have a really funny story about this uh, briefly because the whole, and in case you don't know, To Live and Die in L.A. is about cops who are hunting uh, this counterfeit ring by a very young, and I do mean very young Willem Dafoe. Or you no, know, like this was just post Streets of Fire, where like mid 1980s. There's a scene early on where it shows you how he does his little counterfeit operation and how he like makes or he, or he launders the money. It is so accurate to ha- how money laundering is and this kind of thing is actually done that the U.S. Treasury Department was consider and was pressuring the studio to cut that scene out because it was too accurate because they th- were worried wow. people were going to imitate it. <laughs> that is a go- that is a good su- that is a job well done sign for a filmmaker. Like, hey, this is too close to the real thing. Absolutely. We'll there are the so government. many great stories about William Friedkin or in films like behind the scenes. Remind me about the t- time about the stuff he did with the Exorcist, like how he instead of calling action on set, he just fired blanks into the air. Wow. Yeah, there's wow, there's a lot of stuff in the 70s New Hollywood that just would not fly on film sets today. Yeah, we'll definitely for better and for worse. Cover that at some point. That's anyway. hilarious. Back to the one of the things I noticed about the opening, which again, this is just such a small thing because when the the actual town he goes into is such a small part of the movie. And was the the name of the town being machine? The whole movie has this general theme of entropy and death, or in death and die. And I think that also include includes to the town itself how it or it's the approaching shadow of industrialization going or in reaching over this faded vision of the old west. Yeah. Yeah, I could just be pulling all this out of my ass, by the way. Right no, the way that, I'm not that sure makes how little sense. Or maybe I'm reading too deep. Or in too deep, but it's definitely an interesting thing. Or in detail, it is de- that I yeah, think no, adds to it. That makes total sense to me. Um, right. I like the I like how the town looks. It's just like yeah. so grimy, oh, so grimy I mean, and dirty. Like again, there's cre- I love all those like panning shots, shots across. When he's across as he's walking, or like all these cow skulls, and it's really atmospheric, and like it is clear he is a fish out of water here. Oh yeah, and that's another um scene that's an example of a shit. Um, <laughs> it's all right, man. I can't even read my own handwriting. Um, 
action over dialogue, like visual. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. It's also a good chunk of mood. Like there's, a, and I mentioned like the film's dark comedy. There's a segment where we see this like really like rough, rough and tumble, almost redneck looking guy get in getting uh getting an or an old or an BJ uh behind an alleyway, and it. And Johnny Depp's just like watching, like, what the fuck is going on? Right here, and then the guy just like pulls a pistol, right? And pulls as she keeps blowing it, him, and he's just like, okay, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And like, it's one of the first signs that he is way out of his depth. Visual storytelling, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. sorry. I'll I'll leave now. (laughs) Mike, insert Discord mic muting sound here (laughs) if you want. No, wow, that was a bad pun. (laughs) <laughs> um what else what else you got on your notes yeah when... I mean, that actually brings me to my next point is one of the things i love about again one of the things i love about johnny depp's character in this you don't really sympathize with him but god do you pity him yeah 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 because it's not like he's unlikable it's just he's just kind of what's the word aloof a doofus yeah yeah like not particularly spec like he's very much a norm or just like this average guy in army, very, very coward. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> yep. I like. Or I like Branch. Like, nothing special. Yep. Until like I don't know, he just yep. goes on that. Or ex- until he becomes ex- this man. Journey. I think. Or is there any? This reminds me actually when you mentioned him becoming a myth. Is there any genre that has gone under this much reinvention in film other than the western? Like when was the like. When was the last time you saw like a generally straightforward western, where that wasn't trying to be and be different from everything else? Which I'm not saying is a bad thing. It's just interesting that it happened so much with this genre. Yeah, let's face yeah. it, we are long past the days of John Ford movies. We are long. And in like and Clint Eastwood, even Clint Eastwood's character was still a reinvention of that. Or even something as or in a sketch. Or as classical as High Plains Drifter is still verily morally skewed, very almost horror movie ish. Or like it, I don't want to spoil things, but it feels like a classic EC Comics ghost story or in a story or in throughout the whole thing or anything as long as well as just a classic Clint Eastwood western. I've not seen it, but I'll check it out. Yep. If you want to earn something like Dead Man, but is more straightforward genre territory, I'd recommend High Plains Drifter. So that's okay. still weird enough to be alternative. Again, it's either stuff that's been said by smarter people. But I also love that the, the, the layers of violence to this movie. Like, we mentioned how awkward and clumsy it, or it is and bizarre. Or like, sometimes it just feels like it comes out of nowhere, like, without motivate. And I mean that in a good way. Or like, yeah, that, that's what probably would happen. Like, there's one shot I remember um, around the tr- the trading post scene I mentioned earlier with Alfred Molina, where, he's just, where Johnny Depp's just sitting on this log with, with a shotgun. He just gets shot in the back, and he just has, like, this empty look on his face. And like... Yeah, I buy that. I buy. Yeah, it seems realistic to me. Like, I mean, realistic in a, I don't know. It yeah. seems, I, I, yeah, I buy it. Um, and I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it just, it doesn't seem over the top like how so many other movies would. Play I like that. over the top violence, but there is a place for something like this. There is a. Place. Yes, yes, it's that. not Tarantino. It's not Evil Dead, which. Yeah. Honestly. There is one thing I, one of the things I really, really wanted to talk about this was, I, I mean, I'm very mu- much love Jarmusch, even if I am very hit or miss on his work on the whole. I, he's one of my favorite director, directors because of just how distinct his voice is. 
which is weird because he's very much anti-auteur theory. Like he, and he is very much no. This is not just my work. This is the work of everyone involved. I like how he's able to or to or have that very humble attitude while still having movies that are distinctly his. But how so? How so? Right, like right, it's clear that there's running thread, ran threads and um, motifs in all his work, like the use of black and white, the way he writes characters, the you. And use, he feels like that guy, right, like in the bag of glass, who was into very really obscure music, and like, right, you were, and like, you, whenever he like recommend you a, right, an album or something, you weren't sure if you were gonna like it, but you're definitely gonna be interested by it, and it would definitely stick with you. Yeah, he was probably an interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure he's an interesting guy. Yep, his voice is a lot deeper than I expected. I must say. <laughs> I like, like, like listening to interviews hair with him. And sunglasses. Yep. Oh yeah. God, the be- the best haircut in this industry outside of David Lynch. <laughs> yes, they're very similar. Also. Yeah. Anyway, one of the things I love about I think the thing I like really like most in uh, Jarmusch's work is when he's doing genre territory, whether it's this or whether it's westerns or horror or gangster or gangsters or romance. Like I think that or his vision of these genres is just so different. Very like humane yeah. and um. Yeah. Humane and definitely, and definitely alternate. You know, like it doesn't feel pretentious like that elevator, like that whole elevated horror thing, which I like Ari Aster and all, but I hate the trend of everything trying to be hereditary now. Yeah, that is, uh, that is something I'm really hoping dies off in the next decade. Provided we're still gonna have new movies in the next decade, who knows? Hopefully. Um, Fingers crossed. What do you What do you think this film says about like religion? I'm not sure. Like, I'd, I'd say it's more spiritual and, um, I don't want to say secular in a way, but not specific to any specific religion. Like, if it yeah. is, it's going to be Native Americans. Would... Okay, one last thing about the Native American representation. I'm Because I love these little details. There's whole scenes of this movie that are left that are left in Native, Native languages like Cree and Blackfoot that are left untranslated just as in-jokes for those audiences. Oh, nice. I mean, obviously they've been translated by now because the internet exists. Exist, but I don't really want or want to look into them. I'm fine with the mystery. I'm fine. Yeah, I I also appreciate when um also, subs- subtitles aren't used. When I also don't think it's exclusionary or confusing because you can still read what those scenes are more or less about just from the visuals. Yeah, yeah. Like the like scene the, where where, where uh, there's this where the first of these sing- scenes actually shows up. Well, a little. There's this brief uh part in the movie where nobody basically just disappears for a while. Or in a while, and when he comes back, well. He ba- I mean, he's caught in the mi- well. I don't. What's the what's the polite way of saying? He's basically caught with his pants down. Literally. And then he just like comes running towards Johnny Depp and hugging him. And I'm like, my friend, you've returned. And then his girl and her friend is like clearly mad. Like, what the hell, man? We were in the middle, of- and they're just having this argument, and it's really. And you're like, no, come back. And she like draws it out, and she she's like, actually like really- going for the argument. It's less sad and more really funny. It's probably yeah. one of the funniest scenes in the whole movie, honestly. Yeah, yeah, just because how pissed off she is. Yep. Or like, and she's here's the thing: she's entirely within her reasons to be pissed off. She's entirely... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there's also I think a broader. And I mentioned the whole balance of a uh, dark comedy and moody, or in moody melancholy with this whole film. I think that or in a lot of that can be exemplified just the meaning of nobody's name. Exabiche, which, according to his character's translation, is he who talks loud and says nothing. That's one of those things where you're like, that's funny, oh, and they're like, oh. Oh. Fuck. That's sad. 
Yeah, this movie is pretty sad overall. Which, and I'm, but not in a way that's depressing, because again, no, it's still no. got black and white and like, and like gunfights and horse in classic Western iconography. And it's comedy. Just, yeah, and com and dark com we're in really good dark comedy. And again, great, that great Neil Young score, which one of the things I love about that score is like, like Blade Runner, it not only works well, well as the music, it is almost inseparable from the film's DNA, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it is part of the sound or in sound design, too. Or anyway. Like, uh, in the in the beginning, when like when you see the train, it's uh, the close-up of the uh, yep. the gears of the train. That, yeah, yeah and, that, and those just, like, general guitar or any strum or any re generally get rough at the same time. Yeah, like, a distorted I mean, like delay. Those, like, it's almost staccato-ish, but it sounds like the wheels, like, turning, like, or, like, just chugging along. It's, I love the little things like that. Oh yeah, you can tell like there's so much thought and I think, um, intention I, put into this film. I think the thing that separates this with Ernie Ernie from uh, other Western stores, especially Marconi's, where he's like, yes, again, I mentioned that electric guitars are now just a standard part of Western scores. This is a lot harsher and a lot fuzzier than you and than that sound usually is, which I think is yeah. what makes it stand out. It's like a, a guitar used for sound rather than music. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah, no, I think there's a whole I mean, noise rock is the term. Ah, uh, I could see that. Yeah. And there's a, there's an oddly cyclical nature to the story, too, if you think about it. One of those things, again, one of the things I like about the repeat viewings is that the whole movie technically like, works in a circle, if you think about it. Or, like, he fades in and out of consciousness. It's like he comes in as he comes down, out, like, barely adrift. Yeah, wow. And speaking of which... This is my favorite use of fade transitions I've ever seen in a movie. Oh yeah, or really they, any like fancy like standard transition that isn't just like a standard cut. They because really it serves really such are. a broader purpose. Yeah, because it feels like Lorraine getting lulled in and out of consciousness. It legit or you like wake or you remember that part in uh, I think it's Mulholland Drive where that woman is like slowly waking up and then just goes back to sleep or everything's out yeah. of focus. Yeah, it reminds me. It feels like that, but for a whole movie, it feels like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah like there's some crossfades in the beginning. Oh no! I, I mean, in the in the middle, that like serve when he's like falling asleep on the uh, even stuff when he's early on. I mean, again, the train voyage, I mean, the voyage just serves it. I mean, like it feels like a long journey. Yeah, and he you can tell that he's going in and out. He's like coming asleep, waking up, and um, I love also like how the passengers on the train slowly look more rugged as yeah. time goes on. I didn't even notice that. I yeah, yeah. Like I mean, it, that's a great. That's a great detail because it, I mean, it's a slow or visual way of showing how much closer he's getting getting the western. Yeah. Because yep. in the beginning, it's like you know this woman. She looked at him. There's a few women on the train, and they're like in dresses and whatever. And by the end, it's like just straight up grizzly people, and they're shooting yeah, out of the window. Yeah, it's just dudes in like bear. It's like dudes in bearskin coats with with rifles. It's all. Or the part where they're shooting at the buffalo at the window is just such a weird and unexpected moment, but it's also I mean, it's oddly char comical. Yeah, it's pretty funny in a dark way. Yeah. God, the it's ending cool. shot of this almost feels like something out of an Ingmar Bergman film. Yeah, like a yeah. wide shot of nature with a. Yeah, uh, the like just God, small. the fog over the water as the canoe just slowly drips into the ether. It's just, it is such a perfect note to end on. It's like a rolling fade. The story just kind of, it's just, yeah. the story just kind of rolls out. Yeah. The whole movie feels like a dream in the best way possible with the surreal, or or like a really bad, not a not a really bad acid trip in the everything's like nightmare inducing, saying but more, more it feel, or it feels like this is a very bummed out trip, man. 
Yeah, like a boring, like a boring kind of sad trip. I wouldn't say bo- boring. I wouldn't say but more or more just melon. I think melancholy is the perfect word for this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember um, m- mentioning earlier that the black and white rain filters for this really makes it feel rain feel dirty in the best and grungy and authentic. I think the whole movie rain is like kind of like Kristen Glover's character, Crispin. Yeah, Glover's. Rain, where it whole it feels like it's coated in charcoal or something grime. Or smoke, or hate. Yeah, I love. Even the darkest darks still have that bit of haze to them, which which I actually like. I, mean, like. I think part of that is due to the grain. There's like a heavy yeah. grain on on yeah. it. Um, no, but I love when Crispin Glover's character like talks about laying down on the boat and like the water's moving, and you can't tell if it's you're moving on the water or, or like the the water around you's moving. Um, which is very good foreshadowing for the end. Yes, exactly. And Actually, I Actually, that reminds me of so why much. it's cyclical. Yep. This is... I mean, very little we can say is there, then, yeah, we think this is... Like, there are parts of this that are legitimately, like, standard Western cool. Like, the part where William Blake has kind of buys in his own delusion that he is the actual poet. Or in Star... Yeah. Or in Star... Or in has, like, the makeup on, and he starts shooting random guys coming after him. Do you He's know like, my poetry? Oh, like, that's awesome. Bang. <laughs> and, like, yes. that is legitimately really cool. Yeah. Um, I noted about the production design. Like, it's not um great for a low budget film because this is under ten million. Oh wow! Yep. Yeah, no, but um, like the town looks great, and they don't even—they're not even in the town for very long. And then, yeah, but um, it's still so distinct that it sticks with you for the rest of the movie, at least. Yeah. Also, the um, Native American temple I love. Like the the yeah, had, like the doors open like a yeah. It almost feels like doors. Normal. It almost feels like the opening of like a carnival spook house, right? Like a ghost train. Yeah, um, yeah. I I think that's more from the way it's shot than it's designed, though. Like the way the camera just goes into it and it, and just like the darkness starts overtaking the frame. It is really an otherworldly experience. It isn't. It looks so cool. Like the just how that's an entrance and like it it turns into a face. Um. Yeah. I I still really love. I, mean, I mentioned this earlier, but I really love how Johnny Depp's character really is more. Pi- you more pity him than sympathize with him. Pity. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's, I mean, there's so I, many examples of that. And kudos to Jarmusch for making that still an interesting character. Mm-hmm. I also think it helps. I mean, it helps too I mean, that they popular populate the rest of the background with so many interesting little details that you really can't get bored. Yep. Yeah, it's a very full movie. Um, without being over the top. Like, say what you will about Jarmusch, even, because I mean, sometimes it's slower movies, I get why they, I mean, they can irk some people, but they're at least, he at least packs them with interesting things. I mean, with the, he keeps you engaged. He's a good... Yeah. And I there's stuff there to analyze, like, it's not just, like, artsy and obtuse just for the sake of being artsy and obtuse. Is. I want to see, um, I mean, all of his films, really, but, uh, yeah, like, Night in the City, um... Night, no, Night no. on Earth. Yeah, no, no, no. Kind of City was a Jules Dassin noir film from the early fifties, which is fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but that is a very different movie. Night on Earth is really good, though. I'd, yeah. I yeah, I recommend. And then, um, Stranger Than Fiction. No, wait, Stranger, Stranger Than Paradise. Paradise. Excuse me. <laughs> That's mixing up my movies. Yeah. Um. Okay, I I do have a question about this film though. Was he dead from the initial shootout in the motel? Possibly. That's yeah, honestly, get... That's actually that's something I didn't even think about. Cause Cause think about, but shot. now that you mentioned it, that's or that is entirely accurate or impossible. That is entirely. I, mean, I, lo- 
what's your take on it? I want to hear your. I mean, I think it, you could see it either way. Um, it's like one of those um, up in the air kind of things. But I like that it, that's even an option. I think it, it calls back to the opening shot, actually, of the um, the quote. Like, it's not preferred to travel with a dead man. Yep. I'm trying to remember. I mean, who was the guy they quoted for that? Because I can't. I, Henry something. I don't remember. I'm just but... going to look it up right now. I should probably start doing more research before before we do this yeah i as well ah well we're still learning yes okay here's the quote henry michaud is his Mm. name it is that i am not he was a he was a belgian writer and painter huh interesting nice that's again one of the things i love about jim jarmusch is that he really has this love for like punk rock rock and a really eclectic alternative mute music but he still has these really cosmopolitan and upscale references is that the guy yeah. is very clearly very well educated and, oh yes but he's but still he's likes... not a, but he's not a snob about it he's not a snob no no he, he likes grunge and punk yep. he's in the those clo- scenes as well the closest he can remind me of is like what if sting was a filmmaker from the police like he he and he and him come with a very scholarly but humble vibe both to me they're also just plain yeah. cool <laughs> yes yes yeah. um i like how existential this film is i did entirely too. but like, not um, in a portentous way like weighty but it's a way that again and i think the dark comedy helps because it helps the film from feeling like too much of a brain weight because there, a lot of the things that it discusses some heavy ideas yeah the, the dark well, comedy definitely balances it out but it is a very this, like deep it's it's very dry comedy too yeah, and dark. Yeah, intermittently dark. There are some jokes that are very broad. Like, like John, again, this scene where Johnny Depp has to go on the run, run because he's been framed is like when he just falls out of the window, or out of the window of that or in parlor, flop house, whatever you want to call. Right? Uh, he's like in his long jongs. He's like falling out the window in like mud, or in mud and onto a horse, or in horse that just drags him. Along. Yeah, that's very dry. It sounds like it feels like what if Don, someone threw like a Don Knotts or Charlie Chaplin and ran into like El Topo or something, Like in a, I mean, like it's such a weird tone, but it works. It's it is one hundred percent its own thing, which is, I think is one of the biggest compliments you can pay any movie. Oh yeah, and it's excellent because some movies that are their own thing aren't great. Yeah, like which are. I'd still appreciate them. Those are, I think Sonny Bunch from uh, Free Beacon and the Washington Post said it best when he was like, these movies are interesting failures. Dead Man, obviously not excluded, or not included, because both Chandler and I would consider this personal favorite of ours. Oh, yeah. I think that's fair to say. Anyway, when you're talking, because even then, if it's able to do that, it's still doing something right. It's clear. Yeah, they, like, they're, they're really going for it. Yep. My first... I like a big. I'll take a big swing any day of the week over something that is very, just middle of the road and toes the line. Yeah, the first thing that came to my mind for that was like Waterworld. Yeah, yeah, the, I'd agree with that. I'd agree, and I'd agree. And anyway, like final rating, I think this is a perfect ten for me. Oh, absolutely, perfect ten. Yeah, and it, it, I love it so much more with each viewing. Yeah. Yeah, like this is the first, or like it's not the first Jeremy movie I've seen, but I think it's the first one that really crystallized why I love, I mean, I love his work so much. Yeah, yeah. 
much, and I'm not sure if anything is going to top it, but I would re- be really excited to see if anything does. One more note I have that I forgot to mention, um, like the Shoot. the bed the bedroom scene and like the scene following, I just love so much. Probably probably my favorite parts of the yeah. movie, but like her line, I forgot the female character's name. Um, Cell. Um, okay, yeah, she was such a minor part. But um, yep. when when Johnny finds the the gun under the pillow, and like he freaks out, I was like, "Why do you have this?" And she's like, "This is America." I mean, that's. That is awesome. That's a That's great a good, line. It's a good little bit of social commentary too. Yeah. Or like, I mean, not even like modernist stuff now, but like the old West. West really was not. A, it's like romance. Oddly enough, going back to Pirates of the Caribbean again, it's weird that we've romanticized this part of history so much. Understandable, yeah. but when, but the discrepant, but the actual differences between the actual history and the and the, and the fictional representations of it are so jarring that it can be like, wow. And Jeremish, uh, he even talked about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love the Q and A he did on the Criterion Blu-ray, which is definitely worth checking out. Yes, it's uh, I was talking about like the Wild West is now like a myth. Um, yeah, one of those things that's just gonna get increasingly mythologized and deconstructed over, or if the genre still sticks around, which I think it still will. Like. And this is going to be fairly pedestrian for film makers, and call me a film bro if you must, I don't really care. At least I've seen more movies than the average film bro. This, the closest I can think of a comparison to this is like, or anything like Miller's Crossing or, or Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Okay, yeah. Because like, it feels like a more extreme version of a Coen Brothers movie in terms of its mood and atmosphere. Like, it's more, it's basically imagine a more atmospheric Coen Western, and you basically get this. I'd say this is like, I don't know. I want to say it's darker and more emotional. That's why I say more extreme. Like again, there, I mean, there's less dial. Like Coen Brothers obviously have a filler for good dialogue, and so, and by in all means, Jim Jarmusch does too. But this is way more heavy on mood and atmosphere than anything the Coen Brothers have ever done. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying this is a diss, but them. I still love the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Don't get me wrong. Yep. Although this does a better balance of comedy than that, because. The only comedy in that in Ballabuster Scruggs really is just the open the title segment. It's weird to me how how largely disconnected that segment feels from the rest of the movie. I actually have not seen it. Embarrassingly, it's on Netflix. It's definitely worth watching. I I liked it a lot. And I just don't not sure. I like it better as individual pieces because as an anthology, it doesn't feel like it clicks together all that well. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, and speaking together. of things. And speaking of comparisons and th- and things, I was think I've had uh, the thought of everything as a remix on the mind lately. Like originality comes from the vision of the story, not the story itself. Which brings me to the fact, and because I remember hearing it, rewatching a video about Inception that came out, and analyzing the film from like a decade later. Or that mainly like all the influence of it, and so I decided to rewatch that before seeing Tenet. Nice. What did you think of Tenet? Uh, I. Look, I know a lot of people like to pretend that Christopher Nolan movies are these deep intellectual treatises. I think even that I think Nolan, there's a line in Tenet that perfectly sums up how to watch his films and not get confused. Don't try to understand it, feel it. Focus on the goal, not the means of getting there. Like, what are these characters actually doing? Like, I mean, like the metaphysical stuff is great, right? Great and all, and it's right, actually really astounding how Nolan can explain these concepts in these movies that make billions of dollars. Probably the only filmmaker who can do that. Or in that, but still, or in, it's still, 
ran light and fun and ran enough in par- ran parts to where it's still enough to keep a general audience engaged. Yes, I'm very excited to see it. Like Tenet has a lot of heady ideas about time travel, obviously, or in discussion about it, but it's still got Robert Pattinson like slick suits and time, or in gunfights and reverse foot, or in footage and all that. Like all I could think of was, or I'm trying to hang on. I have a met, or in the, I sent this to a friend a few days ago that basically sums up. Here's how I would review this movie if I was still a dumbass 15 year old. It was awesome. There was time travel and reverse footage and gunfights and Robert Pattinson in a fantasy suit and they crashed a real 747. That is the coolest fucking shit I've ever seen. Seriously. Yeah. Because I don't think these movies are as heady. And I don't mean that to downplay Christopher Nolan. I just don't think, think people are just. I don't know. They It's a misreading. It feels like a. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if that makes, makes sense. any sense. Because I mean, these are guess. still very accessible. I think they're. Well, yeah. I'm very yeah. excited to see it. Yeah. What else have I you seen recently? I've still, I did a whole Christopher Nolan bit. Like, I rewatched the Dark Knight trilogy. Still holds up really well, and one of the things I actually noticed with that Adam Nolan's work that I really like, I don't get why people say Christopher Nolan is, like, emotionally cold and dis... I mean, I kind of, but, I mean, to say he's outright humorless is bizarre to me, because there's so much dry humor in the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah. Coming black. (laughs) I wouldn't say he's distant or cold. Um, What? I was going to say, there's lots of levity in the Dark Knight movie. Like, there's a lot, there's a line in The Dark Knight Rises, which is one of the reasons I still unreservedly love that movie, is when uh, the last time when Gordon and Batman are talking, and he, and he's like, the le- and he like, and the, and a hero just requires something as simple as putting a, and a coat over a young boy's shoulders to let him know the world hadn't ended. Yeah, that is, that's beautiful. That is such a heavy line. And I mean heavy in a good way. Like, and it's, and like, it's just so specific. Like, and like, one, it calls back to the moment Batman begins, obviously, but it finally lands for Gordon, like, oh, oh. And it just lands so hard for that character that you feel or that the commu- that's all you need. That's all. I love. Dang, I need I to rewatch know. that. I love that movie I'll- also unconditionally. I I really don't even get the hatred for it. I really. I think I think the hatred is due just because it the, wasn't as good plot as the Dark thing. Knight. That that's yeah. true too. Like nothing was gonna live up to the Dark Knight. Like because that the hype for that thing, I still don't think there's anything comparable outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because I don't think there's the last time any movie felt like that big of an event that what that wasn't on my Disney. Yeah, I I also would say that no Marvel movie can come anywhere close to the Dark Knight I, trilogy. I think a couple do come close. Like the only thing coming closer are the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, but those are great for very different reasons. Very different. Yeah, reasons. yeah, yeah. But I I mean, cinematically. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. They're more interesting. Anyway. What you know, Rand, going back to Dead Man in a film that I think is a lot more close to it is a uh, Gus Van Sant's film Last Days, which, if you haven't heard of that, it's basically his Kurt Cobain biopic, but they can't call him Kurt Cobain for legal reasons. Or like I think or in his or in his estate and Courtney Love were just not okay with the way he wanted to do, because I don't think it's in poor taste. It's just well, when whenever they get the family of a or of a real life figure involved in their biopic, it, I mean, the first instinct is usually to lionize them and try and sand the edges off of, which is understandable. Don't get me wrong; I'm not yeah. saying people are wrong to want that. I just don't think it leads to particularly interesting movies, which yeah. is why something like or like something like this or I'm not there, because well, as you can guess from the title, it's about basically the last few days in Kurt Cobain's life. Well, I mean. And yeah, I know, again, I mentioned that this isn't Kurt Cobain, but come on, it's Kurt Cobain. It's like, a documentary? Uh, no, it's, a, I mean, it's a, a drama, actually, like a very moody art. It's a dramatization. 
Like, it's very sparse on dialogue, very sp sparse on actual story. Like, it's very much day in the light. Mundane is the best word, but God, if it isn't mesmerizing at points. Like, there's uh, stuff, like, like we had to use medium wide shots to keep and to be both uncomfortably close and uh, very emotionally distant from a situation is really reminds me a lot. There's a shot in this where they where the camera's from outside the house and it's showing uh, the Kurt Cobain and or in a log playing guitar, guitar, like, it starts out as a song, and it gets a little more aimless and uh, terrifying. And as it goes on, the camera just slowly zooms out, and you get more distant from it. It's really something. That's quite a... Wow, yeah, that sounds beautiful. It sounds like something out of a, Tar a Tarkovsky film. Ooh, I'm interested. It's not for every taste, and I, if you feel alienated by it, I will completely understand, but I found it really interesting. It's on HBO Max if you want to check it out. Yeah, I will. I just wrote it down. I always, I whenever we do the podcast, I like yep. next to my notes of the film we it watched. It feels similar to Dead Man, Man in some ways because it, or it very much like again that feeling of entropy and like general, or like general aimlessness, I guess. Yeah. Okay, or, that sounds well, like an, it an accurate. Um, it, it captures parallel. the mundane. There's one. If there's one thing I love about the Last Days, even though I do, some of I still have problems with it in some way. Ways because there are times where I admit it does test my patience a little. There's it captures em the emptiness, mundanity, and silence of depression, what much better than any film I think I've ever seen. Wow! Like I don't think there's any. I mean, it captures like how quiet and truly alone depression feels. Yeah. Okay. Which is such um, a hard thing to do while still making something that's engaging. Which is such a hard. Because I again, I think this is still Rand, this is a movie with problems, but I respect it for what it gets right. I absolutely yeah, yeah. I'll check oh. it out. No, I always I always keep a uh, a list of all the films you reference yep. whenever we do a podcast and write them down. Yep. Alrighty, let's see what else I've done. Okay, and speaking of uh, psychedelics, as we mentioned earlier, I finally Randy got around to seeing Feels Good Man, the Pepe the Frog documentary. It's good, man. I love the title, it's and good, I, man. I love it, dude. I, I want to see it so bad. It's great, actually, and I like how they focus on the creator. You really feel bad for this guy because of how much his creation got hijacked. Like, but it's still, but it doesn't feel like it victimizes him in any way. It's very fairly nuanced, actually. And you said or, it's on iTunes. Yeah, you can rent it on iTunes, and I think Vudu. Like, it's not. It's very. This is very independent. So I'm gonna look it up right now and just name every single one or one. So if you have any of the or any of these, you'll just know where to get it. See. Yeah. And psychedelics are involved in the film. Oh, yeah, I was wrong. It is on Prime Video, huh? Oh, nice. We're in perfect. Perfect. It's on Prime Video, Amazon, Vudu, and I and uh, Fandango, I believe, because you can you actually can rent movies from there. Oh wow. Oof. Yeah. Fandango now. That's what it's called, I guess. Seriously though, it's a it's very well paced. The animation's really cool when they were really incorporated, and it's weird to see, it's weird to hear stuff like Kekistan and Nuke referenced in an actual movie, and not mm. feel out of touch. It's like hearing the hearing Chris Evans say SJW in uh, Knives Out. Yeah, okay, right? that makes like, that makes total sense. It sets you like a bat or in the back, like, well, shit, I never expected to hear that in a movie. It's wow. I mean, like it throws you for a loop for a second. It's very well. I love the pacing of this too because it feel, it is very well paced for a documentary. Nice. Genre, that is both very consistent quality wise, but also I think has the tendency to have like 
right in the middle where where it feels like the pacing just isn't as consistent. Yeah. The only like I I'm not huge into documentaries, but if I like if I see one I like, I really like it because like a su- I they're either like a hard that really misses. intriguing to me. Yeah. I think that's the way it is for most people. Like if the subject doesn't really interest you to begin with, you're probably not going to groove with it. Yeah, I guess that, that, there that are exceptions sense. to every rule, of course. Like there, I mean, like if you're a good enough filmmaker, you can make me care about some something that I, I mean, might even have disdain for. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, the last documentary I saw that I really loved was um, the Art Life with David Lynch. Yeah, I, I mean, I also recommend They Shall Not Grow Old, which still one of my favorite documentaries in the last few years. Just re- legitimately, probably my favorite thing Peter Jackson had ever done. Just what is it about? It's about uh, World War One. It's, t- it's entirely ex- constructed from hundred-year-old footage, and actually they re- they recolored it and remastered it, and used and used that audio clips and everything. There's no there's no interviews, no nothing. It's entire- wow. It's legitimately an impressive thing to behold. Or it's just a me- just as a measure of uh, historical and film preservation, it's must a must watch. That seems so tedious to recolor all that. Yeah, like God, the amount or like each frame of it. Okay, too, wow. just the made up painstaking work. I do not envy them, but I'm so happy they put in the effort to do it. Just thinking about that makes me stressed out. Yeah, I, me too. I mean, anyway, I think that's what we got to say for Dead Man. Next, next time we do this, we're gonna be taking the we're gonna we're gonna be taking uh next week off. We're gonna off, but we will have two new episodes for the rest of this month month we're actually going to be doing a lot of content for the rest of the year which i'm very excited about yes excited and nervous because of because of uh notes september is going to be fun october is going to be a fucking blast november slam packed november is probably going to be our artsiest month and december is going to be very science fiction heavy that's all i won't get into any specific titles things are going to get really fun stay tuned Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your show. Follow us on Twitter at Warp Celluloid. Send us a DM if you want to be, I guess, on the show or, in a show or have a film you want us to cover, and we'll put it on the schedule. Yeah. Uh, find us on Letterboxd. Of course. Chan- just search Chandler Williams and Jack Rourke. Otherwise, peace out. Thanks for listening, man.